Thank you for joining us for our Renewal City Church podcast. If you're looking for ways to get involved, join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Roxy Theater in Longview. Or find us online at rcclongview.org. We hope you're blessed and that this message finds you well. So I've read a book recently called Storyworthy. It's by Matthew Dix, who's a, a pretty well-known storyteller. A- any of you familiar with the Moth Radio Hour on uh, National Public Radio? It's like a storytelling competition. He's won it a whole bunch of times. And he wrote this book about how to tell a good story. And one of the things that he talks about in the book is the movie Jurassic Park. Uh, a- a- any of you seen the original Jurassic Park? So I, I think it came out in 1993. I know I recently lost an argument over that, so I'm pretty sure it was 93. I think I was arguing for 95, and somebody else was arguing for 93, and the internet sided with them. Uh, it came out in 93, so I was 11 years old when this movie came out, a big summer blockbuster, and I recall going to the theater to watch it, and I don't Many of you who've watched movies in your life probably have the experience where there's like a movie that represents something that you've never seen before. I mean, Jurassic Park was that. You had these dinosaurs that looked way more real than anything that had been in a movie before that. And as an 11-year-old boy, I was, you know, just really impacted by this movie. Well, when the author of Storyworthy talks about the movie... The point that he makes about Jurassic Park is that it's a good movie, not because of the special effects and the dinosaurs and all that, but it's a good movie because of the story that's in it. Anyone know what the story of Jurassic Park is about? It's, it, <laughs> trying to, there, there are those elements in it, but the story is all, you'll remember this, the story is all about Alan Grant, a paleontologist, and the relationship issue he has with the love of his life, uh, oh, what's her face, a- a- Ellie Sattler, who's a biologist, which I know what you're thinking, paleontologist, biologists getting together, how can this movie only be rated PG-13? This sounds really scandalous right from the beginning. Uh, anyhow, Alan Grant hates kids. Uh, the first time we see him in the movie, he hates kids. In fact, he has this like giant claw from a velociraptor, and there's a child who's on the dig site looking for dinosaur bones there, and the child annoys him. And so Alan terrifies the child with the giant claw. He uses it to scare the kid away. And then he and Ellie are talking, and, and he hates kids. He just can't stand kids. And this represents a real problem in their relationship, because if they are to end up together for all time, if this is to be a, a love story with a happy ending, then he's going to learn how to like kids because she likes kids and, and maybe wants some kids someday. So throughout the course of the movie, yeah, there's dinosaurs and helicopters and islands and all that. But throughout the course of the movie, Alan learns to love these kids. He saves them from dinosaurs. He comforts them physically when they're afraid. And the last scene in the movie is everyone flying away from, uh, from the island on a helicopter. The dinosaurs have taken it all over. And Alan is sitting in the helicopter seat. He's got one of each of the kids on either side of him. He has his arms around them. And he's looking at Ellie, and he's smiling because he likes kids now. He likes kids. And their love story is going to have a happy ending. Um, This is what makes the movie good. A story about 
relationships. This is what makes, this is really what separates good movies from bad movies, no matter what genre you're looking at. Um, and, and they tried to make other good Jurassic Park movies. I've seen a few of them. I don't know. There's like nine or something. And they're all terrible. They're absolutely god-awful. Just trash. The special effects get better and better, but the storylines fall apart. The characters fall apart. I was, there was a real travesty that happened in the last Jurassic Park because they did what they're doing in movies right now. They bring back washed-up old, old actors back into the movie so that you'll watch it again. And so they bring back the two actors that play Alan and Ellie, um, but you find out, spoiler alert, you find out in the newest Jurassic Park movie that they are not together. The whole first, the only good movie in the franchise is about them resolving their relationship issues so they can be together, and then you find out they're not, they, ne- they never got together. Never happened. Never had the kids. Come on. Come on. Someone's not doing their homework. Hollywood, you should be ashamed. Uh, all of this has to do with the Bible uh, because <laughs> we're in John chapter 5 today. And there's this story in John chapter 5 about a paralyzed man and a, a pool of water that stirs up and, and bubbles at certain times. And, and as I'm reading the story and thinking about this week, I'm like, man, there are so many special effects in this story. There's so many details that could be distracting. This could be like a bad Jurassic Park movie. We could get through the passage and be all hung up on the things that don't matter that we miss the story that really matters, the story of relationship and, and the story of, of humanity in there. Um, anyhow, so the hope today is to get through this story without being sidetracked by the special effects. We'll pick the story up in, in John chapter 5, verse 1. You can read along if you want on your own personal device or Bible. John 5, 1 says, Sometime later, Jesus went up to, the fe- to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda. And this pool is surrounded by five covered colonnades. There's a great number of disabled people who used to lie there, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed, and they would wait for the moving of the waters. Because from time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the water. And then the first one into the pool, after each such disturbance, would be cured of whatever disease they had. One of the things I noticed right away is John writes all of this without any kind of disclaimers. So he's not like, hey, guys, I know this sounds crazy, but there was this pool in Jerusalem, and when the water bubbled up, first one in gets healed. Anyone have any questions? Well, yes, I have a few questions. This is a reminder that the, the mindset of ancient people is so different than our mindset. I mean, right away, I, I read the story, I see the special effects, and my mind is fixated on it. Like, what? how? What's the trick? What's the catch? What's going on behind this? I have scientific questions. I hear about bubbling water. I hear the story in Scripture, an angel came down and stirred the water. I think, well, that doesn't seem very realistic. What could be going on here? I have ethical questions. First one to the pool? That doesn't seem fair. This is crazy. We need to be reminded sometimes that when we come to Scripture with certain questions, these Scriptures weren't necessarily written to answer those questions. 
We live in a culture and a time that's so different than the original context of Scripture. We live in a post-enlightenment culture where science began to be the way that we understand the world around us. Pre-enlightenment for thousands and thousands of years of human history, spirituality and religion was primarily how humans understood the world around them. Now we have science, which isn't a bad thing, but it's different. It's a different way of thinking about the world. We live in an incredibly um, skeptical and cynical culture then when it comes to supernatural phenomenon being described. Uh, Because we can't uh, break down a, a narrative from a couple thousand years ago of why the water is bubbling up, because we can't break that down in a scientific way, because we can't go and find the evidence or figure out what's going on, our, our minds are skeptical of things that cannot be explained. I think it's worth saying again, in most situations, in most cases, when you come to Scripture with scientific questions or cynical questions, you're not going to find answers that you're looking for because that's not why these scriptures are written. They were written by people who lived in a pre-scientific age. They weren't asking questions. They didn't feel a need to explain exactly what was going on with the water other than, hey, an angel comes down and stirs it up. We don't have any other explanation for it. It has to be a spiritual source for this. I think when we acknowledge that these scriptures are written differently and and to people who lived in a different time, it doesn't make it any less inspired and it doesn't make it any less useful for our own lives and application to our lives. But I do think that when we acknowledge these kinds of things, it may help us to understand more clearly what it is we're supposed to be getting out of these scriptures, what it is that they're meant to say to us. This whole business about an angel stirring the water, it's not meant to guide our understanding of whatever kind of geothermal or supernatural thing was happening in the pool. That's not the point of the story. We're not supposed to read it and figure out what were the healing properties of this water in Bethesda, or perhaps move to Jerusalem and try to find this place. Maybe we'll get our own miracle of healing. That's not what the story is about. This is a story about the person, Jesus Christ. The Gospel of John is about Jesus. And this story, even with the details and the special effects, is meant to be teaching us something relational about this person. So don't get sidetracked on the details. Don't go out and build a doctrine or plant a church on the healing waters principle. Um, And don't use verses like this or things like this to then Go and kind of handpick out and then sanitize a verse so that you can justify whatever it is that you're doing today. These stories are preserved to connect you to the person, Jesus Christ, and to be blown away by the beauty of who he is as you begin to grow in your relational knowledge of him. So looking past the weird details, let's look for some people in the story. Picking it up in verse 5, there was one there, a person who had been an invalid for 38 years. So getting over the bubbling waters, there's a person there. People matter in the story of the gospel. People in many ways are all that matter. There's a person there who's been a cripple for 38 years. 38 years. That's a lifetime for some of us. 
half a lifetime for others, more than a lifetime for others. That's a long time. And whatever's going on with the water, and he's, you know, presumably been by this pool more than just today, whatever's going on in that water has zero impact on his life, has zero ability to heal him or to make a real difference in his life today. But someone is about to show up on the scene who's going to make an incredible difference in his life. Verse 6, when Jesus saw the cripple lying there, and he learned that he'd been in this condition for a very long time, he asked the man, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? Jesus walks up to a cripple who's been laying there for 38 years, and he says, do you want to get well? Why does he ask that? It seems kind of rude to me. I mean, here's a guy at the pool where you're supposed to get well, and Jesus says, do you want to get well? Is he just being rude? Probably not. What is Jesus seeing? What is he looking for? The invalid replies to him, sir, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. And when I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. He's not the first in. He doesn't get healed. I think when Jesus looks at the man, he's seeing this whole predicament that the man's talking about, this thing that's happened to him, maybe day after day, maybe week after week, maybe year after year, he's come to the pool, he's watched the water like a hawk, waiting for signs of stirring, and when he sees some motion, he's trying to get into the pool, but somebody beats him to it every single time. He doesn't get his miracle. What kinds of things would be written on the face of a man or a woman who's faced disappointment after disappointment? What kind of things would be written on the face of a man or a woman who's laid next to a pool in faithful hope that they might have an opportunity to be healed, only to be disappointed over and over and over again? What did Jesus see? Why does he say, do you want to be well? I think what Jesus sees is hopelessness and defeat. I think he sees written on the man's face and broadcast in his eyes this entire predicament, these years of disappointments crawling desperately towards the water after it trembles, only to have someone beat him to it and claim the miracle. And then having to go home that day, crippled, just like he left the home that morning. I think Jesus sees hopelessness. I think, I think for any of you who have maybe struggled to endure through hoping for different things, or any of you who have gone through disappointments or, or things like that, you know what that feels like. And it can have, at times, a bit of a numbing effect where you're kind of like, I don't even know if I have any hope left. I think when Jesus asks him if he's well, he's asking the man to stir those own questions in his own heart. Do you, how are you feeling? Do you still believe? Do you still want this? Do you even want to be well? Or are you just, you know, wallowing in, in despair and hopelessness and don't even know? Yet, here the man is today, right? There's this hopelessness and this hopefulness that are competing in his heart. Something keeps bringing him back. He's by the pool today, and you imagine he's probably thinking, maybe today he's watching the water until Jesus comes and he starts talking to Jesus. He's watching the water. Maybe today's the day. Maybe he tried to get a better spot a little closer to the side. Today's the day. But in the moment that Jesus speaks to him, he looks at it and he says, it's hopeless. 
This is what happens every time. The water stirs up. I have no one to help me, no one to carry me, no one to get me to the place where my miracle will happen. Jesus looks at the man and then he says to him in verse 8, Get up, pick up your mat and walk. Then verse 9 says, At once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and he walked away. Jesus says, do you want to be well? Yeah, no one will help me. I have no hope. I can't get out of here. I can't get to the pool. That's where the wellness is. And then Jesus just shortcuts the whole thing, says, get up, be well. And he is. It's a miracle. Just like that. He can pick up his mat and walk home. Now, we don't know how the cripple got to the pool that day, but I would assume somebody carried him there. And somebody carried his mat. Or maybe he held the mat while somebody carried him. I don't know. But there's a significant change that has happened because no one is carrying him home. He's picked up his mat and he's carrying something under his own power for the first time in 38 years. I was looking at this healing and astonished by, you know, this change happened. And I try to enter these things in my mind when I read these stories because if you've read the Gospels before, you're like, I've heard the story before. Jesus healed him. Woo, big deal. Come on. It's incredible. A cripple walking. That's astonishing. You know what else is even more astonishing, though? For a a good religiously trained person, what was more astonishing to me was what didn't happen. Sorry, I seem to have lost my place. Yeah, what didn't happen? One. The man didn't ask to be healed. He didn't ask. You have stories of people coming and asking Jesus to be healed, and we see Jesus work through that. Here is Jesus healing someone who didn't even ask. What kind of a good God do we serve that he would give us good things, that he would intervene on our behalf in this way without even being asked? I've experienced this in my life on occasion. You ever, you ever, you ever almost, we're going to edit that out for sure. Please, oh please. Uh, you ever almost like hit someone in a car and, and they got out of the way, thankfully. I was, I was, I worked at Waste Control for a number of years and I was, I was leaving the parking lot at Waste Control. Many of you have done that. If you've ever been to the dump, you've, you pull out. I mean, the waste stations and stuff were there. But it was the same parking lot, pulling down to 3rd Avenue. And every year, I parked, every day, I parked my truck opposite side of 3rd Avenue in the building that's now like CED Electrical and the Stanley Plaza over there. So I had to cross 3rd Avenue at the end of the day, every day. And uh, driving in the truck all day, I was tired. I clearly wasn't fully paying attention. And I thought it was clear and no one was coming. And I just pulled straight out there to drive right across 3rd Avenue. And lo and behold, at the last second, I see a car coming, you know, south on 3rd Avenue. (laughs) And there's, I'm like, there's no way. I try to gas it to get past him. I'm thinking, there's no way. I hear the tires screeching. I see the car somehow by a miracle, like drift, miss me, come around. And he pulls into the parking lot. And he's like, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, are you okay? And he says, yeah. I used to be a race car driver. I am telling you, if it was anybody else, they would have plowed right into the side. But he's a race car driver. Who does that? Who gets that? 
God intervening on my behalf. I haven't even asked. I'm not even aware. This is who God is. He's so good. The man doesn't even ask. Lost my place again. <laughs> this stands out to me. He doesn't ask. He doesn't, he doesn't confess Jesus is Christ. He doesn't pray. He doesn't, he doesn't even acknowledge him or say thanks afterwards. Religion really trains us to do the right things and then to expect God to do his part. But then scripture comes in, and if you really read it and you're really paying attention, it just blows that all up. Just blows it all up. Not that there's no reason to do right, and not that there's no reason to trust God and believe in him to do his part, but any time that there's an element of some kind of transaction in there, any time that we're feeling in some way entitled, or any time that our motives are out of trying to get this God to do what we want him to do, we are falling out of the way in the reality that Scripture paints for us to relate to God. We have to be careful. Religion can become these sets of practices and behaviors that are all about getting God to do what I want Him to do rather than letting God be who He is and allowing Him to shape us and form us into who He's created us to be. Why does Jesus heal a man at a pool who doesn't even ask for it? who doesn't even pray for it, and who doesn't even say thank you. I think Jesus heals him because, one, God is gracious, because he's good, but I also think he heals him because Jesus knows he's going to accomplish something more through this healing than could ever be done in, 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 in not healing him, but something more through this healing than just simply giving this man the use of his legs again. There's something greater at stake here. The author notes that and foreshadows it, and we'll get into that part a little bit more next week. It says, the day on which this took place was the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who was healed, it's the Sabbath, and the law forbids you to carry your mat. This is the part where Jesus is getting at. He, he's throughout his ministry looking for opportunities to teach the religious leaders of Israel, of, of the Jews, who he is. To teach them that he is Lord over the Sabbath, that he and the Creator are one. That his authority is higher than their religious beliefs and their traditions and their convictions. And this healing on the Sabbath is just another example of Jesus determined to reveal himself to the leaders of the Jews. The Pharisees questioned the man. <laughs> Verse 11, uh, they questioned him, you know, what are you doing carrying your mat? You shouldn't be doing it. This is the Sabbath. And the man replies to them and says, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. And so they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick up the mat and walk? <laughs> this is so funny. They, who's the man who told you to pick up the fellow and walk? They could have said, Who is this guy who healed you? I mean, that's what I would be wondering. Who is the, What? The guy who healed you? Wait, what was? you're the guy who was laying by the pool for 38 years? You got healed and he told you? Who's the guy who healed? Nope. Who's the guy who picked up, told you to pick up the mat and walk? Sometimes when God breaks our rules or when he doesn't do things our way, we don't even recognize the miracles that happen. We're so fixated on God fitting into everything that we want him to do and fitting into the religious box that we've constructed. And we're kidding ourselves if we don't think we're building our own. They might not be quite as elaborate as those of the Pharisees, but we're probably just as deceived by them as the Pharisees were. All they know about Jesus is he's breaking the rules. That's all they can see in him. They don't realize 
who he is and what, who he really is and what he's doing here on earth. The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. The man doesn't know who he is. The Pharisees don't know who he is. No one seems to know who Jesus is. God can pour goodness into people's lives, and he can meet them, and he can trans- begin to transform their lives before they've even realized what's going on. There's one last part that I really debated on skipping in the story because I don't like this part, but we'll read it anyways. Verse 14, later Jesus found the man at the temple and he said to him, see, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. I didn't want to tell this story for two reasons. One, uh, what's the thanks that Jesus gets for healing the man? He tattles on him to the religious leaders. This, if this guy didn't, if there was ever someone who didn't deserve a healing, it's this guy, right? I mean, come on. And then two, Jesus heals him, comes to him and says, stop sinning or something worse is going to happen to you. That just sounds mean and judgmental. It, I, I don't like it. And, and I'm reading it and I'm like, oh man, I forgot about that part in the story. Oh, can I just skip over it? No, people are going to notice. People will notice for sure. I can't just skip over it. I don't want to talk about this. Boy, this sounds, this sounds like the kind of thing that someone would say who I, in my own personal life, am highly motivated to not like. People who say things like that. I don't, I don't know if he's trying to infer that the man was sick because he deserved it, because he was a sinner. I don't know. And you start reading the commentaries, and you know, people who write commentaries on scripture for a living, so far more qualified than me, say all kinds of things. Maybe it was this. Maybe, maybe he was warning him, you know, to, to not be, to, to stop sinning so he doesn't go to hell, because what could be worse than being crippled? Well, going to hell, yeah. And, you know, that makes sense, and I don't know about sin causing us to be physically ill, but I know people make a case for that, and that can make some sense, and so I thought what I really wanted to do if I was going to talk about it was spend about 10 minutes explaining it away and softening it for people, right? Trying to help it sound better. Trying to help you understand that Jesus, you know, he's not that bad of a guy. Um, But then I began to feel really troubled about my response. (laughs) I, I began to feel really troubled about what was going on inside of me, right? Like, this whole thing of wanting to play uh, the, uh, the apology police for Jesus, right? Like, you guys, I'm a pastor, and don't, don't be mad at Jesus for saying this, and he didn't really mean it, and whatever I might do to try to, <laughs> try to explain it away. And I began to think things like, well, wait a minute. Who is Jesus, right? Tapping into that, that relational knowledge. Who is this person? Do I really trust him? Do I trust him even when he does things or says things that offend my modern sensibilities or my desire to avoid confrontation at all costs? Do my modern sensitivities require that we go back and reword scripture in a way that's a little more palatable for, you know, our uh, educated and evolved minds? 
I was, th- I was troubled with this thought. When I read scripture and I think to myself, oh, Jesus should have done this, or I wish he wouldn't have done that, or I wish he would have said this, or I wish he wouldn't have said that, I'm troubled by this thought. This happens inside of me. And then I thought, I bet I'm not the only person who reads scripture and thinks this. And even if none of the rest of you here in this room do that, I'm sure that there's some people who read scriptures and think, man, I wish it didn't say that. That really makes things difficult for me. When these kinds of thoughts enter my head, this highlights a far more serious issue than whether or not Jesus is commenting on the man's illness or his eternal soul or, or whatever it is he's saying, right? Because when those kinds of thoughts enter my head, it's highlighting a relational problem that I have with Jesus. And the, and the problem that I have with Jesus is a lot bigger for me than whatever problems he may have been resolving for people 2,000 years ago. The problem that I have with what Jesus said is far more important for me than however, whatever he said made this man feel and whatever decisions this man made for the rest of his life because of, of what Jesus said. These scriptures were preserved. These stories were passed down so that I could know Jesus for who he really is so that we could know him and walk with him for who he really is. And it's easy for me to point a finger at the Pharisees and be like, ha, they didn't get it. Jesus was Lord of the Sabbath. How could they not see it? The fools. In the meantime, these kinds of responses in my own heart reveal that, oh, James doesn't get it. Jesus is the Lord of my life. He's the king of all the earth. How do I miss this? You know, I really thought, I really thought I was following him so faithfully. I really thought I was growing in my understanding all the time of who he is. And I really felt like when God would present realities to me, I was the kind of person who would just bow low before those realities and receive them as true. That's who you are. You don't have to make apologies for it, God. I I believe in who you are. I've surrendered to who you are. And I'm sure that's part of the story of my life. But there's this other relational story that's told through these subtle emotional responses that I have when I'm reading Scripture and I come across something that I don't like. There's a a relational reality that's buried deeply somewhere in this mysterious relationship that I have with God. And the only reason I'm talking about it in front of all of you is because I really think that you probably have some similar relational realities that are buried deep inside of you somewhere in that mysterious place where you relate to God. These stories in Scripture exist that we might know who God really is. That we might be blown away by the beauty of who He is and that we might be humbled before His majesty humbled before the glory of the Lord of all the earth. Jesus is here in this world to reshape it and to remake it and to restore it how it ought to be. He's here to reshape my will 
and my modern sensibilities and my moral compass. He's here to reshape all of that. I don't get to read Scripture and reshape Jesus. That's just making God in my image. It doesn't work like that. He's here to save humanity from its own worst enemy, to deliver us from the slavery of serving ourselves, to set us free from the law of sin and death, that we might be alive to the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God that's been sent by Jesus to dwell in our hearts and to teach us all things. In the end, I was super thankful for this reminder this week from the story. And I'm sorry I don't have any answers about what Jesus meant or how the water stirred up. No answers whatsoever. But this was super important to me. Jesus is my Lord. And I am humbled by the majesty and glory of my Lord. And it is appropriate for me to surrender to to him and say, you get to be who you are, and I get to be transformed by it, not the other way around. I'm thankful for Bible stories that are more than just special effects to wow us or to fascinate us or things that can lead to, you know, stimulating conversations about what might be in spiritual realms. I'm thankful for stories that cut to my heart and challenge us and who we are. 